Today we continue our four-part sermon series entitled Refresh, the Transforming Power of God's Grace. Over these four weeks, we will be introduced to various biblical characters, all of whom have been recipients of God's transforming grace. And along the way, we'll learn some valuable lessons about the amazing grace of God that apply not only to their life, but also to your life. Last week, we examined the life of Moses. Today, we cross paths with the man named Elijah. I invite you to draw your sword, take your Bible, catch up with him in 1 Kings chapter 19. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. 1 Kings chapter 19. I want to read the verse 18 verses of that 19th chapter. 1 Kings chapter 19. Please hear the word of the Lord beginning in verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. How he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled some 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord's about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elisha son of Japhat from Abel-Meholeh to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death anyone who escapes the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death anyone who escapes the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, all whose mouths have not 
kissed him. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Our story begins on the heels of the sovereign showdown on Mount Carmel between the Lord and Baal. The Lord had one prophet, the man named Elijah. Baal had 850 prophets, for they broke out as 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. The ground rules had already been established. We will both build an altar unto our God. We will call out to him. Whichever God answers by fire, he is the one true God. Baal's prophets went first. They constructed an altar. They cried out to their false God. They lasted all day long. They sang and they danced and they prayed. It could not get Baal's attention. Eventually started cutting themselves, hoping that the sight of their blood would capture the attention of their God. Eventually, before long, Elijah began to smack talk. He said, maybe your God can't hear you. Maybe you need to shout louder. Maybe he's gone fishing. Perhaps he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's just too busy. When it came time for the evening sacrifice, it was Elijah who took his turn. He stood forth. He prayed unto the Lord, and immediately God showed up. He sent fire from heaven. The fire not only burned up the sacrifice, but also torched the altar, licked up all the water, scorched the stones. God showed himself strong and mighty. He showed up and he showed off. He decisively determined and decided and demonstrated that he was the one true God of the universe. In the aftermath of that mountaintop experience, you might expect for Elijah to be carted off that mountain on the shoulders of the Israelites like a victorious coach after Super Bowl. But Elijah stood there and stared over the horizon. He saw a small, dark cloud a great distance away. He knew that God was about to fulfill his promise to break a three-year drought. He said to that wicked king of Israel, the man named Ahab, you better hitch your chariot. You better make your way down this mountain before that heavy rain comes. Otherwise, you'll get stuck up here. At the end of chapter 18, we are told that the power of the Lord came over Elijah. He tucked his cloak and he ran from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. In fact, he outpaced, outmaneuvered, he outran the king's chariot. He got to Jezreel before Ahab got to Jezreel. Now let's put that in context. It's not like they were running from here to the annex across the street. No, from Mount Carmel to Jezreel was 27 miles. Elijah ran a marathon. He ran 27 miles faster than the king's chariot could go. He got to Jezreel before Ahab got to Jezreel. But in our passage, when Ahab arrived at Jezreel, he told his wicked wife Jezebel everything Elijah had done. He talked about the altars. He spoke about the prayers. He talked about how God showed up with a mighty, uh, powerful display of fire. And he also said, that Elijah slaughtered and killed all of the false prophets of Baal and Asherah. When Jezebel heard that, she sent a messenger to Elijah. She gave a public declaration. She said, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow your life is not like one of theirs. I'm coming after you, she said, and I will kill you. 
Elijah was afraid. Jezebel, this wicked woman of the Old Testament, she really rattled Elijah's cage. He ran from Jezreel to Beersheba. How far is that? That's an additional 90 miles. He went as far south into Judah as he possibly could go. He went to the southern tip of Judah, there in Beersheba. He left his servant there, traveled a day's journey into the desert, and he sat down under a broom tree, and he was exhausted. After all, he not only had he completed a marathon, but then in addition to that, he had traveled some 90 miles, and then he had traveled a day's journey into the desert. He had to be physically, emotionally, mentally spent. He comes to the broom tree. He collapses underneath it, and he simply says to the Lord, I've had enough. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And I'm sure that when he sat down under the broom tree, collapsed upon the exhaustion, he was convinced that God would answer his prayer and take his life. Friend, have you ever felt the weight of a broom tree burden? Have you ever just been exhausted with life? You ever been overwhelmed with the stress of a current situation? You ever been inundated with innumerable deadlines and responsibilities? Do you know the weight of a broom tree burden? Jennifer knew that weight. She felt it the day that her boss of some 20 years called her into the office and said, I'm so sorry, but because of corporate downsizing, you're going to have to clean out your office. You've been very faithful as an employee here for the last 20 years, the past two decades, but we can't just keep your job. So by this time tomorrow, your office has to be cleaned out. Molly felt the burden of a broom tree burden. When her fun-loving three-year-old was diagnosed with leukemia, Larry felt the weight of it. When his wife of some 22 years came in to tell him, I no longer love you, there's someone else, and she confessed to a two-year affair with his, at one time, best friend. Sally felt the burden and the weight of this crisis. She was a teenager, but she still knew the weight of a broom tree burden, for she was cut from the cheerleading squad. She was denied access to the homecoming court. She was ignored by all of her friends, and the only thing she could conclude was that it happened just after she got really serious about following Jesus Christ. Jerry knew the weight of this burden. He retired just two years ago. He had no idea that the economy was going to tank, be devoured by inflation. He's now convinced that all of his savings will be gone and there's no way that he'll be able to pay all of his bills for the rest of his life. Friend, do you know the weight of a broom tree burden? It could be relational, it could be financial, it could be a health concern, it could be a crisis in your family, it could be a difficulty at work, it could be a problem in the neighborhood. Do you feel and know the weight of a broom tree burden? This is Elijah. He's overwhelmed, he's exhausted by life, he's fatigued, 
he's stressed out. Now, I don't really know if he wanted to die. Because if he really wanted to die, all he had to do was show his face to Jezebel and she would have killed him. But he ran as far as he could away from Jezebel. I don't know if he really wanted to die, but he certainly cried out to the Lord, take my life. I've had enough. He's overwhelmed with sorrow. He's overcome with stress. And this morning, I want you to see how God dealt with Elijah. And I want to contend that as graciously as God deals with Elijah, that's how graciously God deals with you and me. God longs for us to be refreshed. He wants us to know the transforming power of his amazing grace. He wants to be gracious. He is gracious. That's his character with you and me. This is his disposition. This is how God deals with us as decisively as God dealt with Elijah. That's how decisively gracious God deals with you and me. I want to make four quick observations from this story And these four statements are true for Elijah, and I contend they're also true for you and for me. For all of us know at some point the weight of a broom tree burden. So first, by his grace, God replenished the prophet's physical needs. By his grace, God replenished the prophet's physical needs. In verse 5 and in verse 7, We are told that the angel of the Lord appeared to Elijah under that broom tree. And he supplied him with bread to eat and water to drink. Now in verse 5, it simply says an angel of the Lord. In verse 7, it says the angel of the Lord. And we have discovered that in the Old Testament, whenever we find that phrase, the angel of the Lord, it's none other than Jesus. Jesus knows precisely what you need. He knows exactly how you feel. He knows where you are. He knows what broom tree you have slumped yourself under. He understands completely. And Jesus came to minister graciously to Elijah. He gave him the bread and the jar of water Elijah ate it and drank it and fell back asleep. In verse 7, a second time, the angel of the Lord appeared. The journey is too much for you, the Lord Jesus said. Eat and drink. Jesus knows how to meet your needs. He knows how to meet your needs, yes, spiritually, but also physically. Jesus understands that long before he can address the physical needs of a person, he's got to address their, long before he can address the spiritual needs of a person, he's got to address their physical needs. He must address the physical needs in your life before he can really get deeper into the spiritual needs of your life. This is true when Jesus deals with people in the Old Testament. It's also true in the New Testament. The only story that's told in all four Gospels of miraculous activity of Jesus outside of his resurrection is the feeding of the 5,000. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all record the story of the miraculous feeding Jesus and the disciples had gotten into a boat. They were going to go to a solitary place for a retreat. Once they landed, Jesus saw the crowd. He had compassion on them. They were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he ministered to them all day long. He healed their sick. He preached his sermons. He 
opened the eyes of the blind, unstopped deaf ears, and able the lame to walk. He preached to them the truth of the gospel, eternal truth of God. He communicated to them in preaching and teaching. It got to the end of the day, and everybody was getting hungry. And Jesus knew that it was time to send them away to get something to eat. Because unless he could meet their physical needs, they would not listen any longer to spiritual needs. He could have told them, here's another sermon, just feast on me by faith. Oh, but Jesus knew that they were hangry. It was beyond hunger. Now they're just angry. And Jesus wants to send them away. But where's he going to send them? In that day and time, there are no Arby's. There's no McDonald's. There's no Whataburger. And it's Sunday, so obviously Chick-fil-A's closed. It's Philip who says, Lord, it would take eight months of a man's wages to give each person a bite to eat. We don't have that much money. And Jesus said to his disciples, we'll just go and see what you can find. In that massive crowd, there's only one little boy who has a responsible mama. Only one. Because only one boy had a lunch. And he brought that lunch, gave it to Jesus, and it's a meager lunch. It's five crackers and two sardines. Jesus takes the five loaves of bread and the two fish. He blesses it. He multiplies it, gives it to the disciples. They, in turn, give it to the people. And on that day, everybody ate, and they were completely satisfied. They had their fill. And on that day, Jesus fed some 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So Jesus, on that day, probably fed 20,000 mouths that were hungry. When they gathered up all that was left over, there were 12 basketfuls. There are 12 disciples. In other words, Jesus met everyone's needs perfectly. Not one morsel was wasted. For any of you who have made a big meal, you know how hard that is. To make just enough, not too little, not too much. To make just enough at Thanksgiving so that everybody's completely full. So that you don't have to fill it up with Tupperware and eat on it for the next three weeks. I mean, you know how tough that is to prepare a meal where it's just enough. Jesus did this for 5,000 men, counting the women and children, probably 20,000 individuals. Jesus is the Messiah who perfectly meets our needs. That's the point of the story. He perfectly meets our needs. He knows exactly what you need. So the air that's in your lungs, provided to you by Jesus. The food that's on your table, provided to you by Jesus. The roof over your head, provided to you by Jesus. The clothes on your back, the shoes on your feet, the car in your driveway, all of it provided to you by Jesus because the Lord knows how to replenish your physical needs. He knows what you need before you know what you need. And in our story, God is so gracious. By his grace, God replenished the prophet's physical needs. But he didn't stop there. We can also say, secondly, that by his grace, that it is God who reminded the prophet of his sustaining power. He reminded the prophet. Of his sustaining power. In the story of Elijah, bread and water keep popping up. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 2, Elijah, this redneck from the sticks who just burst onto the scene, he gives King Ahab a meteorological report saying, There'll be neither dew nor rain over the next few years except at my word. And with that, he turned around, 
walked away, leaving Ahab stunned. The Lord took Elijah to the Kareth Ravine. There, he provided water from the crystal clear water of the brook. It is the Lord who commanded ravens to bring bread to Elijah twice a day. Ravens we're talking about. These are the these are the nasty cousins of vultures, ravens, and even the birds are under the jurisdiction of God. And God provided in the most unlikely of ways. He provided bread given to Elijah from ravens. He provided water from a crystal clear brook. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 10, Elijah's now in the city of Zarephath. It's the God-ordained widow who's gathering sticks at the entrance of the city gate to make a meal for herself and her son so they can eat it and die. And Elijah said, my God will provide, but first I want you to bake a a piece of bread for me and bring me a jar of water. And in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 10, that widow does that. She bakes a piece of bread and she gives him a jar of water. 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah bumps in to the prophet Obadiah And Obadiah tells him, listen, we all know that that wicked woman Jezebel, she's trying to knock all of us off one by one. But I've got a hundred prophets. They're stashed away in two caves, 50 each. I'm giving them bread to eat and water to drink. Here in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah received the death threat from Jezebel. He runs 90 miles after already running a marathon, he finds himself under a broom tree. He prays to God saying, take my life. I'm no better than anybody else. Just let me die. And God wakes him up not once but twice, giving him bread to eat and water to drink. Bread and water. Bread and water. Bread and water. You may think to yourself, well, the reason God does this is because it's just showing that he replenishes physical needs. You might be right, but I think there's something more going on. I think that along the way, by his grace, God is reminding the prophet of God's sustaining power in his life. Bread and water, it's not just bread and water. It's a spiritual flashback. He's saying to Elijah, remember, I took care of you in the past. If I provided for you in the past, I'll take care of you right now. If I took care of you in the Kareth Ravine, and if I took care of you in Zarephath, and if I took care of all the prophets with Obadiah, I could take care of you right now. One of our biggest difficulties is we think that our present crisis is too big for Christ. Yet I'm here to tell you there's no problem that's too big for our Lord. If God has got you through some stuff, he'll get you through this stuff. If God has brought you through some agony, he'll get you through this agony. If God has brought you through some pain, he'll get you through this pain. If God has been so good to you in the past he'll be good to you in this moment your present crisis is no problem for the Lord because God gives you spiritual flashbacks and when you see those things in your life that are like bread and water those common everyday elements of life you see it and it's so much more than a piece of bread and it's so much more than a glass of cold water it's a spiritual flashback because you remember My God is able to do immeasurably more than ever ask, think, or imagine. You're reminded, my God's got this. 
God has got this. He's helped me in the past. He'll help me in this moment. Think about all the spiritual flashbacks that God's people have been given over the ages. I mean, we walk outside and look at creation, and our God is the God who spoke and nothing became something. Ours is the God who said, let there be light. And light came running at 186,000 miles per second. Ours is the God who created all things seen and unseen, visible and invisible. Ours is the God who protected Noah and his family in the worldwide flood. Ours is the God who gave Abraham, a ram caught in the thicket to sacrifice it in place of his one only son, Isaac. Ours is the God who liberated the Israelites from their Egyptian captivity. Ours is the God who parted the Red Sea so they could cross on dry ground. Ours is the God who provided the whale so that Jonah might be saved. Ours is the God who shut up the mouths of the lions in Daniel's den. Ours is the God who stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. Ours is the God who lived a perfect life, died on a criminal cross, was buried on the third day, was raised from the dead. Ours is the God who ascended to the heavens and seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you and for me right now as we sit uh, under our various broom trees. I mean, ours is the God who established his church and his church will never fold because God always has a remnant. God always is in charge. Christ is the king of the church and so ours is the God who preserves us. Ours is the God who protects us. Ours is the God who makes a way out of no way. Ours is the God who has helped heal your body. There's somebody here this morning. You shouldn't be here. The doctor said you only had six months to live and that was 16 years ago there's some marriages that should not be here you should be in divorce court but God said I'm not through with you yet I'm going to take the shambles of your marriage I'm going to build it on the rock the Lord Jesus Christ there's some prodigals that still should be in the far country but God said I'm going to rescue your son I'm going to retrieve your daughter there's some people in this house who should not be here but God is a good God God is the one who makes the way God God is the one who gives hope to the hopeless. God is the one who gives help to the helpless. God is the one who fixes us when we're messed up. I wish somebody could testify. There's bread and there's water. There's bread and there's water. There's bread and there's water. Because God gives me spiritual flashbacks. I want to tell you this morning. There is no problem that's too big for God. There's no sin that's too gross. There's no past that's too embarrassing. There is no marriage that is too broken. There is no child that is too wayward. There are no finances that are too messed up. There is no prognosis that's too bleak. There is no city that's too destroyed. There is no culture that is too canceled for our God. Our God can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. Ours is a God who can do the impossible because along the way he reminds us of his sustaining power through spiritual flashbacks, bread and water. Elijah woke up. He smelled the bread that had been cooking over the hot coals. He ate it. He drank the water. He was reminded of God's sustaining power. As God was with him in the Kareth Ravine, as God was with him in Zarephath, as God was with Obadiah, 
so God will also be with Elijah. By his grace, not only, first and foremost, did he replenish his physical needs, and secondly, remind him of his sustaining power. But third, by his grace, God responded with compassion. Do you know how tender our God is? Do you know how merciful our God is? Do you know how gracious and loving our God is towards you who belong to him? He said to Elijah, I've got to take you on a journey. And we have to go to Mount Horeb. It'll take us 40 days and 40 nights. And Elijah said, are you kidding me? I just completed a marathon. And then I ran an additional 90 miles. Then I went a one-day journey into the desert. Then I collapsed under a broom tree. And now you're telling me i got to get up and go 40 days and 40 nights? And God says, exactly. I will sustain you. So for 40 days and 40 nights, they go to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. I hope that the name Mount Horeb is familiar to you, especially if you were here last Sunday. Because last Sunday, we talked about the life of Moses. And it was there on Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, where God called Moses through a burning bush that was on fire but not being consumed. It was to this very spot that all the Israelites returned after they were liberated from their Egyptian captivity and they worshiped God. It was this very spot where Moses went up the mountain met with God on Mount Sinai, came back with the two tablets of stone upon which God had inscribed with his very finger the Ten Commandments. This was the place where God dwelt with his people. And here, God brings Elijah to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. Now, if we're not careful, We'll think that, well, Moses we talked about last week, and today we're talking about Elijah, so they must be contemporaries. But they're not. Their lives are separated by more than 500 years. 500 years separate the life of Moses and the life of Elijah. Elijah was raised on stories of Moses. Elijah was raised remembering the importance of Mount Horeb. It's in this spot that the compassionate God, by his grace, brings the prophet. And he asked him a great question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I've got a bone to pick with you, God. I am zealous for the Lord. The Israelites, they've rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. Uh, those Yehuts who are in charge, Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel, they're knocking off your prophets one by one, and they have said they're going to kill me. I'm the only one left. God does not chastise Elijah. God does not reprimand Elijah. God is compassionate with Elijah. He said, Elijah, I, I want you to go to the mouth of the cave for the Lord is about to pass by. And when you know it's the Lord, I want you to go out and meet with him. Elijah stood at the mouth of the cave. There was a mighty wind. It was such a ferocious wind that it ripped the rocks apart. 
but God was not in the wind. Next came an earthquake. It shook Elijah in his sandals, but God was not in the earthquake. Then came fire from heaven, but God was not in the fire. Just stop and take inventory so far. God has sent wind, earthquake, and fire. Once again, these are spiritual flashbacks to Mount Carmel. Because when Elijah was on his mountaintop experience, Mount Carmel, the sovereign showdown with Baal and Asherah, when he was standing there, God showed up in a mighty wind and the earthquake beneath their feet and fire fell from the heavens. But on this moment, in, at this time, there at Mount Horeb, God does not respond in the same way. He could have, but he didn't. He's not in, in this moment, he's not in the wind, the earthquake, or the fire. Then there's a gentle whisper. I know it's reading into the text, but I think it's there. God probably called Elijah by name. Elijah, it's me. Elijah, it's the Lord. Elijah recognized the whisper of God. He put the cloak over his face. For he knew that he could not see God face to face and live. He walked out. And God asked the same question a second time. What are you doing here, Elijah? The prophet responded with the same words. But I think the tenor and tone is different. Well, God, I came here because I thought I had a bone to pick with you. I'm zealous for you. But the Israelites, my own people, my own culture, they've rejected your covenants. They've torn down your altars. And the people that are left in charge of our nation, they're knocking off the prophets one by one. They've sent a death threat to me. I'm the only one left. God, have you forgotten all that I've done for you? Have you forgotten where I am? Have you forgotten who I am? God, have you forgotten what I've done for you? And in so many words, the Lord just says to Elijah, Elijah, I don't need your resume. But Elijah, you need my relationship. I don't need your resume I don't need you to articulate all that you've done for me. I know who you are, where you are, and how you are. I know what you've done. I know your resume. I'm the one that put it together. I don't need your resume. What you need is to be in my presence. Friends, can I ask you the same question God asked Elijah that day? What are you doing here today? What are you doing here today? Your answer could be, well, it's Sunday. I'm supposed to be here. This is my church. I've been raised here. This is where I go. Some of you say, I've got a drug problem. Mom and dad have drugged me to church all my life. I'm here just because it's Sunday. I'm here out of habit. I'm here because I need something. I'm here because i got a prayer request. I'm here because i got a problem. I'm here because i got something you need to fix. I'm here. I, 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 I don't even know why I'm here. Friend, why are you here today? 
Well, doesn't God know all that I've done for him? Doesn't God know he owes me? Doesn't God know all the things I've taught, all the years I've been in class? Doesn't the Lord know all the ministry that I've done? Doesn't God Friend, why are you here? God doesn't need your resume. But you know what you need? You need to stand in the presence of God. You need to be in his presence. You just need to stand in his presence. Hear him say your name. Hear him minister to you in your point of need. You are here today because you're in need of his grace. By his grace, he replenishes your physical needs. And by his grace, he reminds you of his sustaining power. By his grace, he responds to you with compassion. You don't need to give God your resume, but you do need to be here just to be in the presence of God and hear him whisper your name. Can you hear him? He's here. He wants to meet with you. He wants to talk with you. He wants to help you. He wants to restore you. He wants to be gracious to you. By his grace, yes, God replenishes physical needs, and by his grace, He does remind us of his sustaining power. And by his grace, he responds with compassion. Fourth and finally, by his grace, he restored hope and healing. That's what God does. By his grace, he restores hope and he restores healing. I'm thankful that God sometimes says no, aren't you? He said, Elijah, I'm not going to answer your prayer to take your life. And I'm not going to accept your resignation letter. No, Elijah. I know that people in our culture don't like that word no. Sometimes our children don't like that word no. But I'm here to tell you, I'm glad that sometimes God tells me no. God, this is what I want. This is what I need you to do. This is what I want you to do. And God looks at me and says, no, I'm not going to do that. Because God knows better. We find ourselves under the broom tree, and God says, I know what you need better than you know what you need. So tell me what you think you need, and I'll respond. And God just stands there and says, no. Go back the way you came. I'm not through with you yet. You need to anoint two kings, the next king of Israel and the next king of Aram, which you and I would call Syria. Now, when he says to Elijah, I want you to anoint the next king, he thinks to himself, great, because the king in Israel we have right now is an idiot. He's a bozo. I mean, it's Ahab, and we need him off the throne, so that's wonderful. I'm going to anoint the next king of Israel, but God, why do you want me to anoint the next king of Aram? Because God is communicating to his prophet, hey, look, I have jurisdiction everywhere. I am, not a globe, I, I am not a tribal God. I'm not a national God. I am a global God. I am the God of the nations. I have jurisdiction, not just in Israel, but in every nation on the planet. We say that the nations are sovereign. They're not sovereign. They're under the sovereignty of God Almighty. Every nation is under the authority and the jurisdiction and the sovereignty of God. It is God who appoints kings. It is God who appoints presidents. It is God who brings people to power and takes them out. It is God who does that. So he says to his prophet, I need you to go to anoint two kings and I want you to anoint your next successor, Elisha. Now why did he say that? 
Because he wants the prophet to know. My work is to you, but my work is also through you. Even if you're off the scene, my work still continues. Elijah, I could have taken you out. But even if I had taken you out, my work would still continue. So I want you to go anoint Elisha, your successor. And oh, by the way, I've got 7,000 in Israel. They've never bowed the knee to Baal. They've never kissed his foot. Elijah, you've been reading too many press clippings. Elijah, you've been watching too much Fox News, CNN News, MSNBC News. They are telling you some erroneous truth. They're saying you're the only one left. It's not true. I've got 7,000 in Israel who have never bowed the knee. Now, are you going to listen to me or are you going to listen to your culture? Elijah, I am never left without a remnant. I'm never left without a witness. God, throughout the ages, always has a witness. I don't care how bleak it looks. He always has a remnant. This thing is never going to fold because God is in charge. So God just restored hope and healing to Elijah. Elijah left the desert. He went back the way he came. He did what God told him to do. He left a changed man. Yes, God met his physical needs, but God also met his spiritual needs. God met Elijah's every need. And God reminds you and reminds me that when we come to the broom tree, when we feel the weight of a broom tree burden, there is one greater than Elijah who's come. And he nailed your broom tree to his tree. After Elijah, God stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. Jesus lived a perfect life. He stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem with your cross beam strapped to his back. And he went up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. And there at Calvary, my broom tree was nailed to his tree. My sin was nailed to his tree. My inadequacies nailed to his tree. My disappointment nailed to his tree. My sense of loneliness nailed to his tree. My sense of worthlessness nailed to his tree. My dilemma nailed to his tree. My depression nailed to his tree. My hang-ups nailed to his tree. My problems nailed to his tree. Everything that brings me to a broom tree and throws me to the ground, all of that is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. All of my broom tree burdens were nailed to the cross of Calvary. Jesus died so that I might live. He died to take your sin upon himself. Jesus died. They took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a borrowed grave, rolled a stone in front of it. And on the third day, Jesus got up. So because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Life is worth the living because he nailed my broom tree to his tree. Life is worth the living because he is gracious to me. Life is worth the living because I know he lives. Friends, this morning you may find yourself just like Elijah, 
You're in need of God's grace. You're feeling the weight of a broom tree burden. And I came to tell you that our God is so gracious. By his grace, he will replenish your needs. And by his grace, he will remind you of his sustaining power through spiritual flashbacks. And by his grace, he'll respond to you with compassion. And by his grace, he'll restore hope and healing. This morning, I wonder, why are you here? You've been carrying your broom tree far too long. Just come and cast it at the altar of God. Maybe you're here today. You're in need of salvation. God can save you, friend, today. All you have to do is call on his name, and he promises he will seek and save all who are lost. Maybe you've got a burden. It's too heavy for you. You just want to come and drag it, kneel here at the altar and pray. Maybe you need to come and ask for a minister to pray with you. Perhaps you need to come and join this church. Maybe God is calling you to full-time Christian service. Whatever God is doing in this moment of invitation, won't you respond with your yes on the table to say, God, I'm in need of grace, and only you can supply it. Because I'm here to tell you, God is gracious. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this moment of invitation. We pray that you're honored and glorified. Lord, speak to us. Help us to hear you whisper our name. Help us to respond in obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.